0: everybody. It's good to see you. Uh, the second week of Advent uh, together. So we light these Advent candles because the word Advent, as you know, means coming or it means preparation. It means the time of preparing for an appearance. And uh, that's what this whole period of Advent was about. And so each of these four Sundays leading up to Christmas, the four Sundays of Advent, of getting ready, of preparing, what we're doing is looking at this thing together, the big Advent story and how to become part of it. Because Advent is about preparation. Advent is about preparing. And actually, to understand Advent as just a historical thing about preparing for Jesus to come 2,000 years ago is to miss the point. As over the last 2,000 years the church has celebrated Advent, it's held two things in tension. One, to remember the journey towards the coming of Jesus for the first time. The second, to remember our task in preparing. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. It's an ongoing task, an ongoing preparing that we're involved in every single day of our lives as we live intentionally. And over these four weeks, we're looking at uh, four characters or four groups of people that play part in this story. And we're looking at a wise man's story today. And as Anna said... The term is intrigued, I'll come to that in just a bit. But first of all, there's a bit of a quiz. Are you ready for a bit of a quiz? You can turn to someone, you can consult with someone, you can get some help on this if you need it. Right, here, uh, from this list of 12 names, with someone bef- beside you, can you separate, separate out the names of the wise men from those of Santa's reindeer? There you go. Okay, any, any, any takers? Right. Which ones are reindeer and which ones are wise men? Dasher. Reindeer. Dancer. Reindeer. Sure? Reindeer. Prancer. Surely a wise man. <laughs> <No. laughs> Caspar. Hey, right, okay. Vixen. De- hey, Comet. Uh, Cupid. Reindeer. You sure? Are you? Right, okay. Melchior. A wise man. Dunder. Flixen. Rudolph. So you got the last wise man there. Okay. So, how many wise men were there? Right, how many? Right, so the choices are three, six, six, twelve. Or 15? 12? Well, let me tell you something. We don't know, of course, because because the uh, passage that we just had read to us, it doesn't say, it just says a group of uh, magi or wise men came to see Jesus. But actually, here in the West, we've always held the view that there were three because of the gold frankincense and myrrh, but if we lived in the East and were part of, uh, we, part of the Orthodox Church, part of the Syriac Church, which just opened its first uh, cathedral in this country this week, which is an amazing thing, 2,000 years, and finally uh, uh, an Orthodox cathedral has been opened. But if we were Orthodox, we believe that there were 12 wise men. So, nobody knows, but 3 or 12, 6 and 15, definitely not in it anywhere. What age was Jesus closest to when the wise men visited him? One day, one week, or one year? Talk about it together. There is this view, of course, that it's the romantic view, isn't it, that on this particular night... Uh, Jesus is born in a stable. Of course, the stable is never mentioned in the Bible. That's made up. It's part of our um, wonderful tradition, which isn't really particularly based in truth. But uh, there it is. What the Bible does say is that Jesus was laid in an animal feeding trough. No mention of a stable at all. The animal feeding trough could have been anywhere. But we've invented a stable and in the stable we place some shepherds and at the same time we place these three wise men with their gifts but actually if you read the story through it's pretty clear that these men uh, come uh, to visit Jesus much later on because in the passage we read they come to see him in a house not in a stable or a manger and only his mum's there Only it only mentions Mary not Joseph he's not there only Mary's there, they come to see him in a house, and then Herod, uh, as a result of their arrival, decides that he's going to massacre all the children under two. Herod, by the way, Uh, was prone to do this. Previously, he'd massacred various members of his family who he felt were a threat to him, various other subjects and priests, all sorts of um, uh, local administrators. He was used to getting rid of people who stood in the way. So when he ushered this threat that he was uh, going to massacre every child, boy child under the age of two, everybody took it seriously. But that probably means that Jesus was under the age of two Herod not taking a chance, he's going to massacre every child up to the age of two. So, one last thing. The visitors from the east are sometimes referred to as magi or magi, as in the reading. Uh, What is the most accurate meaning of this term, king or wise man? Well, actually, the term uh, magi is where we get our term in English, magic, from. That's where we get magic from. And the term magi is the plural of a a term magnus. And the term magnus is an old Persian word. And these wise men, as we call them, by the way, we, we don't really know if they were all men, but we know that these people had journeyed a long way, and they journeyed a long way to meet to see Jesus and the term Magi is a term that as I said comes from old Persian and it actually um, it comes from um, the religion of that was started by Zoroastra Zoroastrians there are still probably just under a million Zoroastrians in the world today most of them are in India But um, Zoroastra was a prophet, a wise man, who taught many things. And one of the greatest things he taught was that there was only one God. Zoroastrianism is the world's first monotheistic faith. And in actual fact, um, it's pretty well undisputed, that much of the understanding that later came to Judaism and to Christianity and to Islam that there can be only one God comes from the teachings of Zoroastra in the first place. Zoroastrianism is at least three and a half thousand years old. It's a religion that taught many good things. It taught uh, it taught ecology. In fact, if you read much about Zoroastrianism uh, at all, it's often described as the world's first ecological faith. It taught this because it believed that everything that the one God, the Creator of all, had made was good, and if the one God, the Creator of all, had made it, it was our chart, our responsibility. To respect it, Zoroastrianism was the major faith of Persia, which was the superpower for at least a thousand years. Zoroastrians uh, celebrated astrology, they studied the stars. Now, of course, though that's, that's why magic comes from magi. But the fact of the matter is, as some of you will probably know, it wasn't until the Enlightenment, the 18th century, that we split apart astrology and astronomy. Astrology, which is the study of the stars and the impact they have on our lives, which you can now read about in the sun, and astronomy, which is about how we understand the universe in which we live. Until the 18th century... In the West, around the world, these two practices were held together. And right at the heart of this faith, Zoroastrianism, was to study the whole universe that God had created. Zoroastrians believed that God created the world. They believed that God knew everything, that he was omniscient. They believed that he was all-powerful, that he believed that he was all-powerful. Present, they believed that everything that is good comes from him, and they also believed that it was impossible for human beings to understand God. They were an extraordinary faith, because you're all going to become Zoroastrians now. Aren't you? <laughs> they were an extraordinary faith, because three and a half thousand years ago they taught equality. They taught that there was no difference between the king and the subject. They taught there was no difference between the rich man and the poor man. They taught that there was no difference between a man and a woman. Three, three and a half thousand years ago, they were teaching these things about equality. And Zoroastrianism is also amazingly uh, active. Zoroastrians, they're alive and well and living in India and they're called by another name now. Does anybody know what it is? They are the Parsees. the Parsis. Um, I have a friend who's a Parsee. so I, uh, Oasis works in Mumbai and there's a huge Parsi uh, community in, uh, in Mumbai and, um, and that community has been very good to Oasis as it's developed. They are very inclusive. Um, Parsi from Persian Uh, Zoroastrians were Persians. They migrated to India when they were being um, when they were being discriminated against by Muslims, actually. So most of the Zoroastrian world is now in the cities of India. So that's a little bit about these people. These wise men, as we called them, or kings. The, The word magi, magi, means all of this. These are Zoroastrians. And so there's a dilemma right at the heart of this for us all. It's easy to push Christmas away and turn it into this romantic little story that's about angels with fairy wings and not much else. But the story of Christmas, God's big Advent story, poses huge issues from us. for us I'd like to read to you from this document. I got this from uh, a Muslim friend of mine who delivered this speech in Washington earlier this year. And uh, I was there and I listened to him uh, deliver this um, in the White House, actually, and he gave me the script of it afterwards. And this is what he says. I'm not going to read it all to you. It's long. But this is what he says. He talks about the fact that he grew up in Beirut He grew up in Lebanon, and he went to a school that was run by Christians. But his father, who was a good Muslim, uh, this is his speech here, he says, at the same time, my father put me under the tutelage of a, uh, a, a sheikh in order to study our religion, the religion of Islam. And then he says this, I realized that I was studying many of the same stories and the same principles and the, uh, the same teachings both in my Christian school and in my Muslim school. One day, um, but one day, the sheikh uh, sheik shocked me when he told me that all Christians, whatever they do, will go to hell and all Muslims who pray will go to heaven. Wherever you heard something like that, but the other way around. It meant, he says, it meant that my good teacher, Mrs. Smith, whom I loved so much and cared for, was going to hell only because she was a Christian. And Abdu Allai, the corner shopkeeper, who was so cruel to me and my friends, was going to heaven just because he happened to be a Muslim who prayed. I cried a lot. For Mrs. Smith. And then he says this. So it was that 40 years ago, my journey started, during which I was searching for God's religion. I needed to find out who was right. Was God a Muslim, or a Christian, or a Jew, or a Buddhist, or what? He then says, he, st- he says, I thoroughly studied the Quran, the Torah, and the Gospels. Then he says this, I came to the conclusion that God does not have a religion. God is universal. God is for the whole world. God is love. He is mercy. He is gracious. You can read... The whole talk, if you like. What an extraordinary insight for this man to achieve. But it's one that's in this story. The Magi from the East came to visit Jesus. Their search for truth drove them towards truth. Their love of all drove them towards truth. Their understanding that the goodness of creation drove them towards truth. And they came and they worshipped there. My friend Rob Bell, uh, uh, Rob's been to uh, speak for us uh, several times here and I'm sure some of you have read uh, his books. Rob uh, tells a story about how one day he was looking around an art gallery in uh, Los Angeles and as he looked round this art gallery, there was, a, there was a piece of art depicting Mah- uh, Gandhi, uh, Mahatma Gandhi. And on the, uh, the piece of art, uh, under, underneath this piece of, uh, let me, t- uh, underneath this piece of art with Mah- Mahatma Gandhi's picture, somebody had attached a little label. They just stuck it on there, obviously a Christian, and it simply said this on the bottom, reality check, he is in hell. Reality check, he is in hell. You may think that's a bit far-fetched and only Americans would do that and that would only happen in Los Angeles. I was speaking in a church about five years ago, I guess it was, It's an Anglican church in Sussex and I quoted uh, Gandhi And at that point, somebody walked out of the church. At the end, I was told by their wife, it was a man who walked out, that her husband had walked out because he was a leader of the church. And he couldn't believe that I, a Christian minister, had quoted a Hindu leader. So what do you believe about all those people who don't yet know Jesus? All those friends of yours that you work with every day? You see, this is a practical issue and it arises out of this story. All of those people you work with at work, all of those good Muslim people and those good secular people and all of those people who are who, um, your family members but aren't here this morning worshipping with you. All of those people who aren't quite part of your world and what you do. Where are they and where do they sit and where does God sit with them and who gets included and who doesn't get included? 3,500 years ago, Zoroastrianism, this is their motif, was a religion that searched after a God of love. And it was that belief that drove these men who studied the stars to visit Jesus, here's a very different picture. I don't know if you know where this comes from. It comes uh, let me tell you where it comes from. Have a think about it first? I don't want to spoil the opportunity we're working out. Actually, it's a small corner of a much bigger picture. Does anyone know where it is? In the Sistine Chapel, it was painted by Michelangelo. Michelangelo, who painted the ceiling of the uh, Sistine Chapel with that wonderful picture, you've seen it, haven't you? The finger of God, as God reaches out, he's stretching out for Adam to embrace Adam. Michelangelo painted that when he was a young man. Much later in life, because of the success of painting the ceiling, with God reaching out to humanity, stretching out to embrace humanity, much later on, another Pope invited Michelangelo back to paint the wall at the end behind the altar. And Michelangelo, much, much older then, comes back and he paints this huge thing about God's judgment. And this is just one corner. In the big painting there are people going up to heaven who are blessed but there are people being driven away from God and here at the bottom these people being landed by God in hell where they will burn forever yet snakes twisting around them what had happened to Michelangelo that had turned him from a young man who believed that God was stretching out to embrace everyone into someone who paints this picture, which is about judgment and condemnation. Do we really believe that God is love? Do we really believe that God is inclusive? And if we do believe that God is love and God is inclusive, what does it mean for our attitude towards all those friends of ours that don't quite sit here with us? Reality check about Gandhi. He's in hell. Really? Is he really? Is Gandhi in hell? Do we have independent confirmation of this? Without doubt. It's a ridiculous thing, isn't it? Why has so much of the Christian world spent so much of its time worrying to make sure that everybody not not like us is being judged somehow? Instead of spending our time searching after truth for ourselves. The incredible thing about the story of Christmas is this that it's far more inclusive than the church has ever ever begun to imagine and I know that sat right here you say well we're an inclusive church I think we are in some aspects and some respects I think there are all sorts of inclusions that we haven't even begun to get near or understand and I believe That we, this Christmas time, this Advent time, need to go on the same journey as those wise people did, those wise men, 2,000 years ago. Because as we journey closer to Christ to worship him, I think our concept of inclusion gets stretched I think as we journey towards Christ, our concept of what it means to love our neighbor as ourself, including those who we previously counted as our enemies, gets turned upside down. I believe that only this can save our planet. I've just spent the last 10 days in America. It's an extraordinary experience. Not to sit here as somebody who's British judging America, but to look at the West. I um, I wasn't working as hard as I normally am, so it just gave me a bit of chance to reflect. And I reflected on what America is, and I reflected on what the West is, and I reflected on who we are. And I had a chance to listen to some of the media messages. And I listened to the BBC output on my little iPhones, you know, each morning Radio 4's output, as well as the American messages. I believe that this story sits at the heart of the journey we all need to make in the West. Because until we make that journey towards inclusion of love for one another of acceptance for one another that we only find in Christ, I think we we will be lost. So I'll leave you with this question, this statement. Whoever you are, God invites you to worship Jesus, to make a journey towards that manger, towards that child who is the Prince of Peace, who comes to unite and comes to include And I ask you the question, what does that statement that you see mean for you? Whoever you are, God invites you to worship Jesus. And in worshiping Jesus, our lives are changed. And we find brand new hope. Let's pause. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for all the times that the church has been on the side of a toxic message that announces judgment over others. Forgive us for the times when we sit from a position that tells us that we are right in what we believe and others are wrong and under judgment. Teach us to move towards your truth that is love, that engages with all. We pray for ourselves that our hearts will become this Christmas time, this Advent time, more like the heart of God. Help us. Help us to include those who are not like us. Help us to listen and not just speak. Help us to work for those who are different to us. Help us to extend love simply because we have come to worship at the feet of Jesus. We thank you for the inclusion we know. Help us to extend that inclusion always to others. This is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.